316. This is the Hermetic Hour. I'm your host, Pope Runyon. And tonight, we present a reading and a commentary on a chapter by Frater Stabian and Solomon from the forthcoming book, Hermetic Yoga Beyond the Middle Pillar, Volume 2. This piece is titled, Jesus, Mary Magdalene, and the Holy Grail. It'll trace the story from Bethlehem to Camelot with some remarkable surprises, such as Jesus being the grandson of King Herod the Great. Jehovah was not his father in heaven, and that he believed in equality for women and tolerance for the Gentiles, that he married a Phoenician priestess and princess and sought to unite all Israel under the original Most High God of Melchizedek, El, that his cousin, Herod Antipas, bribed Pontius Pilate to have him executed, and that Mary Magdalene barely managed to escape with their son to southern France, where where she and, and others founded the, the cult and the lineage of the Sangreal. And this is all documented with the latest discoveries from ancient archives. And so stay with us, and we will go beyond the Da Vinci Code. Well, Frater Solomon should be calling in shortly. Um, uh, uh, Mike, are you there? Yeah, yeah, I am. Oh, good. Okay. Uh, what, what I'm what, what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read uh, I'm going to read through everything we have all the way uh, through on this this chapter, and uh, then we can uh, you know after we get it all all uh, uh, read, then we will uh, you know uh, um, iron out you know talk about comment on some of some of the uh, uh, the things that we got going here. Anyway, I'll read the abstract first. In this article, the authors draw on historical and sculptural evidence and the works of modern authorities to establish a controversial thesis. They conclude that Jesus Christ was the hereditary king of the Jews, in effect the grandson of Herod the Great, that he was born and raised in Galilee, and thus he was a devotee of Melchizedek's most high god, El, and his pagan Elohim rather than the Judean Jehovah. They contend that his marriage to Mary Magdalene of the royal Phoenician line was both a spiritual and a political union, and they further suggest that he expected to survive both the Jewish and Roman trials because of his parentage and his claim to Roman citizenship as a royal Herodian. However, Jesus' cousin, Herod Antipas, the Jewish ruler of Galilee, bribed Pontius Pilate to have Jesus crucified. And following his death, his wife Mary uh, finds refuge in southern France and establishes what will become Valentinian Christianity and the legend of the Holy Grail, uh, as perpetuated by Marcus the Valentinian in the 2nd century A.D. Now, that's the gist of what we're going to do. So the first part of this uh, is called the two gods, and this this is perhaps uh, the first part. The two gods, Yahweh versus El. This is this is perhaps the most important part of the argument. 
uh, is, is the difference between the two the two gods of the two gods of Israel. Uh, so we get into it. In order to fully understand and appreciate and appreciate <coughs> what Jesus the Nazarite lived and died for, we need first to understand who he was referring to when he said, "My Father in heaven." That's balsam in, in Phoenician terms. And in order to understand this, we must reveal a truth that most readers of the Bible have never suspected. The Bible, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the Masoretic text, or whatever you want to call it, is primarily composed of two entirely different texts which have been shuffled together and edited into one apparently continuous narrative. The main difference between these two versions of the Bible is the name and nature of God. The earlier books in the sequence refer to God as El, Alethlamed, or Al, and the Elohim, gods and goddesses under El. In effect, El presides over a pagan pantheon. Now this becomes obvious when Genesis is read from an enlightened perspective. Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil, Genesis 3.22. We call these earlier books Eloist and the later ones Yahwehist. Now under Ezra, the Babylonian, uh, under Ezra's Babylonian uh, editorship, the two versions were compiled together and recopied into the Bible as we now have it. By the insertion of YHVH in place of L, Ezra managed to give the impression that God was always the bloodthirsty, jealous Jehovah. Fortunately, his editorial meddling was superficial. We can still read that Adam and Eve and their children were intended to be vegetarians, but that their son Abel sacrificed a lamb, um, a lamb to Jehovah while his brother Cain offered the best of his harvest. Well, you know the rest of the story. Cain was the original Canaanite, and he's the murderous farmer, and Abel, the peaceful shepherd, is his victim. It's the cowboys against them damn sodbusters all over, you know. <laughs> More importantly... It was male domination of the female aspect of the original Elohim, and another attempt to justify the myth of Joshua's genocide against the lecherous, the lecherous Canaanites in order to secure the promised land. Now, I say that the genocide was a myth because there is no archaeological record of it. Some scholars believe that much of the Exodus and the conquest of Canaan their accounts are mythical or even fictional, invented to empower the returning Babylonian Jews to reconquer all of Palestine in the name of Jehovah and in the service of the Persian Empire. We should note that there probably was a King Solomon, but he was certainly an Eloist, a priest king in the tradition of Melchizedek, not a Yahwehist. Ezra, the Yahwehist, left most of the Davidians, descendants of Solomon and Daniel, in Babylon when he returned to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And it should be noted that Ezra was content to hold power in Jerusalem and that 
the first reconversion of the so-called lost tribes of Israel, all traditionally the lowest, would not take place until the era of the Maccabees, the Hasmoneans, just preceding the time of Jesus. This 100-year Hasmonean period was the longest sustained Yahwehist dominion domination of Israel. That's an important point to remember. This this 100-year Hasmonean period was the, the, the longest sustained Yahwehist domination of Israel for most of its history. For most of its history, the land of Israel and its temple were ruled by lowest kings and served by a Melchizedekian priesthood. It is important to mention this because we need to understand the social political situation in Galilee where Jesus grew up and did most of his ministerial work. Most of the population was Gentile, non-Jewish, and still venerated their pagan pantheons, the Elohim, under Elion or Baal Although these Canaanite Phoenician deities had by then been Hellenized after the conquests of Alexander the Great. Now this was a curious cycle of transformations. Phoenician deities such as Melkart and Astarte became Heracles and Aphrodite in Greece, and then they returned to their homeland to replace their original archetypes. King Herod's father was a priest of Apollo, Baal, in Ascalon. Paganism notwithstanding, in Jesus' time, Galilee was ruled by the Herodian tetrarch Herod Antipas with a Roman army as his police force. Antipas' tax collectors and officials were all Jewish. In fact, most of the wealthy landowners and businessmen in Galilee had been Jewish since the Maccabees overthrew the Hellenic Seleucids. Jesus was the original social radical. As an lowest of the priesthood of Melchizedek, he identified with the Galileans and he advocated for them. They were the poor and the Jews or the Judeans were the rich. Now, let's talk about the Hasmoneans and the Herodians so we can differentiate between these uh, these people. The power politics in the Middle East before the Common Era began were very similar to events in the same area today. Superpowers, such as Alexandrian Greece and then later Caesarean Rome, exerted both cultural and political influence on their created client states. They fought proxy wars and had to contend with religious fanaticism and nationalism. In order to understand Jesus' world, we need to disabuse ourselves of the misconceptions we learned in Sunday school Bible class. There were several forms of Judaism in Israel, and many Israelites of that period only practiced Judaism because it had been forced on them by the Hasmoneans, who told them that they were the ten lost tribes, whether they wanted to be or not. The Hasmoneans, or Maccabees, as they were called, were a Jewish clan that led a revolt and finally a revolution against the last of Alexander's political legacy, the Seleucid Empire, which then included Syria, Phoenicia, Palestine, and Judea. The main issue in the Maccabee Revolt was religious. In the beginning of their control over Israel, the Seleucids were tolerant of Jewish religion and allowed it to function. But 
after the Jews sided against them in a war, the last Seleucid ruler, Antiochus IV, set up a statue of Zeus in the temple, sacrificed pigs to it, and outlawed Judaism. Now, this started a long-running guerrilla war between the Maccabees and the Seleucids, which the Hasmoneans, the same as the Maccabees, which the Hasmoneans finally won. And Israel enjoyed, at least the Judeans enjoyed, a 103-year Judean theocracy. But even this pious dynasty became decadent, perhaps Hellenized, and the last Hasmonean king, Antigonus, named from the Alexandrian general who had ruled Greece after Alexander's death, was replaced by an Edomite chieftain named Herod, who was a client of imperial Rome. Now, Herod, later known as Herod the Great, promptly married a Hasmonean princess to solidify his rule over the Jews. And he paid Mark Anthony, yep, same Mark Anthony that, that uh, you know, that fooled around with Cleopatra, up in Antioch to execute Antigonus IV. This was the first of a long list of Herod's executions. He was determined to exterminate the Hasmonean line, even his own sons by his Hasmonean wives. His son Antipater II, from his Edomite wife, Doris, who claimed descent from the house of David, survived to become his official heir. Antipater was the father of Jesus, whom he sired on Mary, the daughter of the high priest Joachim. When Herod discovered that Antipater planned to sire a future king of Israel, uniting the Edomite and the Hasmonean dynasties, he had Antipater executed. Mary, carrying Antipater's child, escaped in the protection of Antipater's cousin Joseph. Um, Herod then ordered all the firstborn in Bethlehem of Galilee to be killed. And this was uh, his last murderous act. He died a few days later of cancer. However, his will, making Antipater his heir, was now still registered in Rome meaning that the child Jesus was entitled to kingship twice over as heir to both Herod and Antigonus, and also to Roman citizenship, which is why the Sanhedrin, having found Jesus guilty of blasphemy, could not have him stoned. Now his cousin, Herod Antipas, who had uh, decapitated John the Baptist, had to pay Pilate, the Roman governor, to have Jesus crucified. Now, one wonders if the Sanhedrin contributed to the Mordita. Now, following Herod's demise, Judea, which included Samaria, Galilee, and Edom, almost the size of Solomon's little empire, was broken up by the Romans into three tetrarchs, tetrarchies. Herod's son, Herod Antipas, was given the province of Galilee as his domain, and Jesus, having been raised a Galilean, was already chummy with Antipas's tax collectors and was preaching major reform, equalization of income, and, of course, tax relief. Almost sounds like one of our candidates these days. Um, And, of course, following uh, family tradition, uh, Herod Antipas uh, needed Jesus out of the way and permanently. 
Okay, let's talk about the father and the mother of Jesus. It may come as a surprise to most of us uh, to discover that Jesus Christ really was the king of the Jews, or more properly, the Judeans. Although alleged to have been of the house of David, his more contemporary claim was uh, from the ruling Herodian dynasty itself. Jesus was the grandson of King Herod the Great, the son of Herod's uh, heir Antipater II, the crown prince of, who was the crown prince of Israel, and Mary, the daughter of Joachim, the high priest, who who was of the house of David. He should not make uh, he he we should not make such statements without citing our sources. Now, in 1946, the British mythologian Robert Graves published a remarkable historical novel, King Jesus, in which Graves developed the above scenario on the parentage and, and lineage of Jesus. This not-so-fictional work influenced a recent scholarly effort, The Herodian Messiah, and came out in 2012 by Joseph Raymond, which employed historical and biblical works to confirm much of grave speculation, with one major exception. Raymond argued for the daughter of the executed Asmonian king Antigonus as Prince Antipater's uh, second secret bride, in effect the biblical Mary as the mother of Jesus. It was an attractive idea making Jesus heir to both the Herodian and the Asmonean dynasties, but unfortunately the daughter of Antigonus would have been far too old to have been a candidate for Mother Mary, virgin or not. So Robert Graves' original choice, the daughter of the high priest Joachim, is, is, more, is more probable. In any case, the marriage was a clandestine affair. Antipater was out of favor with Herod, who had the crown prince executed five days before his own death from cancer. Having foreseen his own demise, Antipater had transferred custody of pregnant Mary to his cousin Joseph in Galilee. It is possible that Herod may have ordered the slaying of the infant children of Bethlehem as part of his assault on his son Antipater and his legacy. This would be typical behavior for Herod the Great in any case. Jesus the Herodian uh, was raised by Joseph and Mary, uh, Joseph being his stepmother, but nominally, um, both were nominally Judean, uh, Yahwehist, but they were Elo- but but in in, in the Elo- in the Eloist, pagan Galilee. Now all of Jesus's friends and eventually most of his disciples were Galilean. His wife Mary Magdalene was a pagan priestess, not a prostitute. Uh, as has been alleged. She was uh, the daughter of a former governor of Syria, Phoenicia, and distantly related to the ancient king Hiram of Tyre from the days of Solomon. Now, as mentioned above, Jesus and Mary's marriage was both spiritual and political. To understand this, we need to look at the religious and political situation in Israel, Judea, Samaria, Galilee, and Phoenicia during the Roman period. Now we'll talk about the priesthood of Aaron versus the priesthood of Melchizedek. The anonymous author of the New Testament book of Hebrews, and it wasn't Paul, declared that Jesus was a priest after the order of Melchizedek, not once, but three times. Hebrews 5, 6 through 10, and 6, 21. To emphasize this point that Jesus came 
not only to announce a new covenant, but to reestablish El Elyon as the Most High God and my Father in Heaven, as he was known to the original Adamites of Enoch before the flood and to the later Horites, Abraham and Melchizedek, and to the Canaanites and Phoenicians of the so-called lost tribes of Israel. In fact, the book or epistle called Hebrews, from chapter 1 through chapter 11, actually discredits Moses and his laws and criticizes him for not offering an afterlife uh, and salvation to the Hebrews, to the Hebrew people that the original Horite and Egyptian traditions had promised. Finally, in the last two chapters of Hebrews, the author remembers that he is addressing the Judeans. He switches gears and begins praising the Yahwehist version of the Old Testament, perhaps in an attempt to revise Ezra's editorial transformations of L into YHVH. However, this does suggest that Jesus sacrificing himself as the lamb was superior to Abel's offering of Genesis 4.4. The Antediluvian Adamites and the early Christians were vegetarians, as were the Galilean Ashea, the northern Essenes. Noah had also been a vegetarian after God's commandment to Adam in Genesis 1.29, but Ezra, the Yahwehist, had Noah sacrificed some of his clean animals when the ark finally made landfall. And Jehovah snowed a sweet savor, Genesis 8.21. And thus, El's vegetarian menu was replaced by Jehovah's barbecue. It can be argued that Abraham sacrificed animals to his God, at least in lieu of human sacrifice, but his mentor, Melchizedek, did not. For if he had, the symbolism of self-sacrifice in the Eucharist would have been abrogated. Circumcision was the original sacrificial covenant, not the slaughter of beasts. What this means is that from the beginning of the Hebrew religion originally established by Melchizedek through Abraham, there has been one most high God, Elion El, or more properly El, Aleph Lamed, who, like Zeus, originally presided over a pantheon, which were referred to as Elohim uh, in Genesis. El even included himself in their number, see Genesis 3.22. The Antediluvian patriarch and prophet Enoch was certainly in the lowest, and scholars agree that the book of Enoch is Canaanite in origin, and whether or not we accept the story of Moses and the Exodus that Ezra's Bible presents, we must accept it as a charter myth for the priesthood of Aaron and the Levite Cohen's, whereas the books of Genesis and Enoch provide the charter myth for the priesthood, the order of Melchizedek. Now, at this point, the reader is Familiar, the reader is familiar with ancient history and mythology. Well, question the question must be asked: How did the pagan religion of the Canaanites and the Phoenicians transform itself into the biblical or lowest monotheism that Jesus of the order of Melchizedek was trying to reestablish when he purified the temple in Jerusalem? Now, the answer to this question is complex, involving the cultural divisions of Israel, the influence of Egypt on Israel and Phoenicia, followed by the imposition of classical 
Greek mythology by Alexander and his heirs upon the entire Middle East. Well, we must begin with the ancient Phoenician father, El, who ruled jointly with his consort, Lady Asherah, over their pantheon, which included the younger couple, Prince Baal and his consort, the goddess Astarte. Now, this tandem rulership or dual gender supreme being is the most important theological principle of the Eloist or Elohim tradition and of Valentinian Christianity. Male and female aspects of the deity are equally venerated. The earthly human counterpart to this union or reunion of God and goddess is the sacred marriage. The monotheistic Yahwehists were entirely and militantly patriarchal. But how did Father El, Lady Asherat, and their entourage of Elohim become an alternative biblical tradition? We have to credit that to the Egyptians. Before Moses, if there ever was a Moses, there was Incanaten, who envisioned one God, Aten. Actually, it starts before Incanaten, but we'll get into that later. Aten, represented by the sun, who embodied all the gods of the complex Egyptian pantheon. If this influenced Moses, he conveniently overlooked Aten's most popular aspects, Isis and Osiris. Women and goddesses became the enemy in the Hebrew mythology. They used marriage to exploit women, whereas the Eloists venerated the institution as equally empowering women. Jesus objected to the ease with which a Hebrew man could divorce his wife. Citing Eloist Genesis 2.24, he said, Wherefore, what God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. Matthew 19.6. Thus, defending the equal rights of husband and wife, and by inference, the lowest dual nature of divinity. We might add that Jesus and the Valentinian Christians were monogamous, whereas the Yahwehists remained polygamous in the first century. In true Christian terms, polygamy disrespects the essential equality of women. I wonder how, you know, why the Mormons didn't realize that. The Egyptian influence on Israelite and Phoenician cultures and religions is well known. During the era when the Hebrews were supposedly conquering Israel, the area was actually part of the Egyptian empire. There is no historical or archaeological evidence for Joshua's genocidal war to secure the promised land. The northern tribes of Israel never marched out of Egypt with Moses. They were in Canaan all the time, ruled by their own petty kings as part of the greater Egyptian empire. (coughs) The Phoenicians had a very close relationship with the Egyptians from the earliest times. Phoenician ships supplied Egypt with timber, copper, tin, and later iron. Egyptian religion and mythology strongly influenced Phoenicia. Some of their myths even show a connection between the two civilizations. For example, Astarte helps Isis find the lost palace of Osiris inside a cedar tree up in Lebanon. Many of their deities are related. Thoth is cognate with Kusor, the craftsman, who is also a Hephaestus of the Greeks and the biblical and Masonic Tubal Cain. The original Eloist, Adamite tradition of Melchizedek probably began in what became Jerusalem among a Canaanite tribe known as the Jebusites. Under Egyptian influence, they seem to have adopted Incanaton's pantheistic concept 
of one God, El, including his Elohim, lesser gods and goddesses. But in Canaanite fashion, all was ruling with his female consort or or aspect, Lady Asherah. This was the tradition Abraham was initiated into. It was the tradition and precepts set forth in Genesis. It was the religion of the Garden of Eden. The Adamites were grovers and farmers and vegetarians, and they used their animals for wool, milk, and burden, not meat and sacrifice. Canaan really was the land of milk and honey, but not a pasture for beef cattle. Women owned the land, and like the land, they were fertile. This was reflected even under the Yahwehists, in the dowry and in the bride price. But instead of owning property, Yahwehist women had become property, perverting the institution of marriage into patriarchal slavery. To the Adamites, marriage had been a sacred bond that had united the divided human soul, and by inference, the two aspects of God, Hokman and Bina in capitalistic terms, by making Eve into Adam's enemy rather than his helpmate. The Yahwehists launched a long succession of social and spiritual injustices that Jesus and his Canaanite lowest wife and priestess, Mary Magdalene, were determined to redress. Contrary to popular opinion, Egyptian monotheism did not begin with Incanaten. The god Amon-Ra was considered the all-inclusive supreme being from most ancient times. A similar panentheistic concept obtained with El in ancient Canaan. By the time of Melchizedek, El had become known as Baal Samin, the Lord of Heaven, the Most High God, and Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God. Genesis thirteen eighteen, and uh, and the Canaanites, like the Egyptian, let me see. Genesis that that was yeah that the, the reference on that the priest of the Most High God Genesis thirteen eighteen, and the Canaanites like the Egyptians continued to venerate God's lesser male and female aspects Baal and Astarte, in Canaan and Isis and Osiris in Egypt, and their counterparts in ancient Greece and Anatolia, they formed the very ancient cycle of the dying vegetation spirit revived by the fertile goddess of nature the origin of the Holy Grail legend, according to anthropologist Jesse Weston, which began in ancient Canaan with the yearly death and resurrection of Baal, a myth that eventually evolved, according to the Gnostic Nicene document of Hippolytus, into the crucifixion of Christ and his resurrection by his wife Mary, who anointed his dead body and was the first disciple to encounter his resurrected astral form. She also instructed his disciples uh, on how he had how he had taught her to ascend the chakras in his western version of what resembles a Tibetan poa, right? And that's the Gospel of Mary. Are you still with me, Mike? I am. Ah, good. Good. How are we doing? Very good. I I, I just this is really exciting because I know the crescendo. 
Yeah, well, well, we're 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 gonna we'll we'll we'll, we'll get to the, we'll get to the tail end of it pretty quick. Okay, the priests of Melchizedek were also called the Northern Essenes, more properly the Asia, who had a spiritual retreat on Mount Carmel in the Lebanon. One of these was John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin and mentor. These were also referred to as the Nazarenes and took what are no, are known as Nazarite vows of chastity. Vegetarianism and abstinence from alcohol and other intoxicants. Jesus was a Nazarene, not a resident of Nazareth, because there was no town of Nazareth when he flourished. We hold that Mary Magdalene also took Nazarene vows before her marriage and maintained a chaste union with her husband until anticipating his coming execution, as prophesied in Daniel, they decided to have a child. We also hold that when Jesus decided to live on through his seed, he was, in effect, returning to the only form of immortality offered by Jehovah rather than the reincarnation cycle of rebirth offered by hell. Hence the question that he uttered from the cross, My God, why hast thou forsaken me? Long before the Maccabees forced their Levite Sanhedrin Judaism on Galilee, the Gentile Alois had their own earlier and purer biblical religion, led by the priesthood of Melchizedek, in which the goddess Lady Asherat was equally venerated, making it compatible with the nearby and more ancient Phoenician religion from which it had, it had evolved. The same way Athenism had evolved in Egypt. There is a good argument that both the tribe of Judah and King, King David and Solomon were Eloists. Uh, Solomon's association with King Hiram of Tyre and his veneration of the goddess Astarte and other Canaanite deities would seem to indicate. Jesus' grandfather, Herod the Great, could and did claim descent from the house of David, and very few descendants of that venerable line had returned to Israel with Ezra. The Maccabees, the Hasmoneans, were not hereditarily entitled to be either kings or priests. And when they succumbed to Hellenizing influences, they lost popularity with the people and the power they had assumed. After Herod's death, Judea, Israel, was a powder keg about to explode. Jesus and Mary as king and queen, priest and priestess, would have united all Israel and reestablished the empire of Solomon, probably with Caesar's blessing. Jesus and Mary could have brought peace and stability to a dangerous ethnic political situation, not unlike conditions in Palestine today. But Jesus' half-brother, Herod Antipas, was not about to give up his tetrarch's throne in Galilee. Now, the bottom line in regard to the priesthood of Melchizedek is that it did come out of Egypt, but long before Moses. It arrived much earlier with visiting priests of the Egyptian Amun-Ra and his pantheon, which became El and his Elohim, and Isis and Osiris, which became Baal and Astarte. When the Hebrews conquered the promised land, if they ever did, they found the original form of their religion already established. We are still not certain 
which of their judges, kings, priests, and prophets, were lowest and which were Yahwehists, but we can be fairly certain that the Davidian priesthood of Melchizedek had much had as much right to officiate in the temple as did the Levite priesthood of Aaron. And unlike the Levite Cohens, the Davidians could also, like Pharaoh, sit on the throne. For the meaning of Melchizedek is Malach equals king and Zadok equals priest. Now, now we are down to Jesus and Mary Magdalene and the sacred marriage. We're coming to the we're coming to the uh, to the, the center of the argument. In the last half of the 20th century, evidence for the marriage and spiritual partnership of Jesus and Mary Magdalene has been accumulating, most of it from the Nag Hammadi Library unearthed in Egypt in 1945. The Gospel of Philip and the Gospel of Mary being the most significant in regard to their relationship. As mentioned above, Jesus was emphatic about the equality and the rights of women. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. In the Gospel of Philip, we discover that the marriage rite is indeed a hieroscamos, a sacred marriage, and a magical operation. According to Philip, the consummation uh, is to be performed in a mirrored chamber. Uh, that sounds like sounds like uh, our, our soul door or Montsalvain. This does not connote a brothel, but rather the coming together of a priest and priestess wearing the regalia and assuming the reflected personas of the god and the goddess. It is the highest and holiest form of what has come to be called sex magic, which in Valentinian Christianity was considered the true passion of Christ as opposed to the crucifixion. Now, we know this was the case because the Valentinians believed that angels sat with the bridal couple in the marriage bed. Now, the Catholic Church accepted and protected matrimony as a sacrament, but opted for for suffering over love and beauty, and especially sensuality, (coughs) as the passion for the masses, and the masses for the masses, pun intended. Their blood and body, bread and wine, wine death sacrament replaced the original honeycomb and honey nectar life and love sacrament of the pagans and early Christians. Jesus' body hanging on the cross, now this is important, Jesus' body hanging on the cross did not become the church's official image until the 6th century A.D. Of course, you could argue that the Roman church supported the role of women with the deification of Jesus' mother. But they downgraded the feminine role by insisting on a virgin birth, thus removing her from the creative partnership between wife and husband, priestess and priest, queen and king, that Jesus and Mary Magdalene represented. In the traditional manner of Isis and Osiris, El and Asherat, Baal and Astarte, the formula of the dying God and his resurrecting goddess as set forth in the Nessaean document. Before we venture further into documentation of this holy marriage rite, we should determine just who was Mary Magdalene. She was the daughter of Cyrus Theopolis, a Roman-appointed governor of Syria, which included Phoenicia, and she was descended from a long line of Phoenician kings extending back 
to the legendary Hiram of Tyre, the close ally of the equally legendary King Solomon of Israel. And she may have been from the village of Magdala in Galilee, but the name Mary Magdalene actually means Mary of the Tower. Temples of Astarte were often multi-storied structures as revealed in ancient sculptures showing priestesses looking out of windows. See graphics uh, involved in this. Well, that's for the book. And this tower motif in connection with Mary Magdalene is confirmed in the early Christian book, Joseph and Asenath, which we will now examine. Along with the Gospel of Philip, there is another ancient Christian document that reveals the secrets of the Iros Gamos of Jesus and Mary Magdalene. This is Joseph and Asenath. Joseph and Asenath is a rewritten and expanded version of the story of Joseph in Genesis 37 through 50. This first century Christian version of the story is obviously allegorical, recasting the marriage of the Hebrew Joseph and the Egyptian And the Egyptian priestess, Asenath. To represent the marriage, the Hieros Gamos of Jesus, the Herodian uh, prince, and the lowest priest to Mary Magdalene, the Canaanite uh, princess and the priestess Astarte. This allegorical version begins with Joseph Jesus visiting Asenath, Mary's uh, father, who was a priest of the Egyptian city of On in Heliopolis. And Asenath is described as a beautiful 18-year-old virgin who is dedicated to serve a pantheon of Egyptian gods. And Joseph appears in splendid regalia with a shining solar crown. And Asenath is overwhelmed by his presence. Her father... That the high priest of Ra considers Joseph a holy man and encourages Joseph to accept his daughters in marriage. Asenath is so smitten with Joseph, Joseph's grace and charm, but when she tries to kiss him, he repulses her, giving her the impression that she has attempted an immoral act. Now, he decries her paganism and, and unclean habits, and devastated, she retreats to her tower, destroys all of her pagan idols, and she fasts for seven days in sackcloth and ashes to atone for offending Joseph and his solar, his solar god. She prays to hell for forgiveness and dedicates herself to hell's service, going to him for refuge. In answer to her prayers, a splendid archangel, whom she sees as Joseph, appears to her in her tower bedchamber. Emulating Jesus, he declares that he is now ensouled, uh, that she is now ensouled, become like a man, as in the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Mary. He offers her a honeycomb as the sacramental bread and nectar of immortality. The Oe Malus of the Crater Repose, seventh degree, which is called the prophet, or rather, the Zabinapanak, a man who knows the mysteries, and that's out of the Bible, an Egyptian title bestowed on the original Joseph by Pharaoh, Genesis 41 45. 
so von Copen and the and the and the and the and the people that wrote the Quadrupola certainly knew knew about Joseph and Asenath. Asenath asks the angel if she may keep her seven virgin handmaidens with her now, now that she has renounced her pagan gods. This is related to the seven demons that Jesus is said to have cast out of Mary Magdalene in Luke 8, 1 through 3. The angel agrees with her request. Now, what the, this symbolizes the new relationship of her purified psychic centers, her chakras, and her sephirat, by the angels of the planets, as is later, later established in the Kabbalah. Now, Joseph will not marry her until Pharaoh gives them his blessing. This is politically complex because Athenath has previously been intended for Pharaoh's firstborn son. And the modern editors of the Lost Gospel theorize that Mary Magdalene may have been promised to the Roman proconsul Germanicus, who had been assigned to the governorship of Syria by Caesar. However, in the Christian allegory, Pharaoh believes that Athenath and Joseph are soulmates and approves their marriage. Makes it obviously Valentinian. This validates Jesus' support of the Genesis Adam's rib divided soul concept and his making Mary a man in the, in the spiritual sense as mentioned above. Which is very important because, uh, according to Valentinian and according to, to our early uh, lowest uh, tradition, the, the the soul was the, the soul uh, was multi multi gender. In other words, it was the soul was both male and female, and marriage brought the soul back together. Asenath's visionary experience with the archangel precedes her physical marriage to Joseph, but must be considered as the sacramental element of the marriage rite or the honeymoon of the Iros Demos, spiritual pun intended. Before Joseph arrives for the actual ceremony, Asenath prepares herself, making herself beautiful in a remarkably sensual passage reminiscent of the Song of Solomon and the writings of Pierre Luis. Oh, boy. Yeah. You ever read Pierre Luis, Mike? Read the what? Pierre Luis, Aphrodite, 1896. No. Oh, <laughs> that is really something. That, that's spiritual erotica. This <laughs> tends to confirm the Valentinian Gnostic Christian origin of Joseph and Asenath. She dons all of her pagan jewelry and finery. Pharaoh gives them a great wedding feast, declaring their marriage a national holiday. This connection to both Joseph as Jesus and Asenath as Mary to King Solomon recalls the verse in both Matthew and Luke in which Jesus declares that's another one we discovered that very few people know about Jesus declares the queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them Matthew 12:42, Luke 11:31. Thus, Jesus declares his connection to the house of David and his wife's connection to the Canaanite Eloah and Elohim sacred lineage. Together, they will reunite Israel under the original God and Goddess, the Elohim. And this verse is obviously important, or it would not have been included in two of the surviving Gospels, 
possibly by the same writer, who stated thrice that Jesus was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, returning to Joseph and, to Joseph and Asenath's story, the bride and bridegroom constitute their union with sexual convicts, and Asenath gives birth to two sons. Now, this may indicate that the real Jesus and his wife Mary had offspring. Although we theorize that they maintained a chaste marriage up until, you know, uh, they thought that they might not survive, as did his father Herod Antipater with the Virgin Mary, until faced with the possibility of death, at which time Jesus, like his father before him, decided to establish an heir to his royal line. Now, let's talk about Jesus' ministry. Our discussion of Jesus' ministry has to begin with his baptism by John the Baptist. John was certainly in the lowest and probably a Galilean pagan. He shared Jesus' view of the sanctity of marriage and lost his head as a result of preaching against Herod Antipas' divorcing his wife. The same Herod Antipas who would later bribe Pontius Pilate to have Jesus crucified. The Baptist was a complex character and very much in the lowest pagan. It's in prophet. John's Book of the Moon reveals a knowledge of the ancient Canaanite astrological planetary chakra system of the yoga that we also find in Mary Magdalene's Gospel. References to our planetary chakra system have also survived in the Ginza Rabba, the sacred book of the Mandanians, who apparently, who appropriately enough, revere John as their prophet even over Jesus. We should also note that the Mandanians were hedonic vegetarians and very much of the, of the line of Melchizedek. They claimed descent from Noah, not Moses. Their God was God, not Jehovah. John also had a, had a recipe for creating what we would call a moon child, which may have followed, may, which may have been followed by Jesus and Mary when they finally decided to conceive their heir. There is also a possibility that Herod Antipas' niece Salome was a priestess of Astarte who wanted John's skull for a ceremonial chalice following his execution but not contributing to it. And this makes her dancing for John's head less of a perversion and more of a religious rite. In effect, a Canaanite version of Ishtar's descent through the seven gates. <clears throat> While discussing John the Baptist, we should also mention Simon Magus, a Samaritan mystic and a magician who was probably also a disciple of, uh, and a student of John's. In many ways, Simon's career seems to parallel or imitate Jesus's, so much so that some scholars have suggested that they may have been the same man. Simon is said to have found a prostitute named Helen in a brothel in Tyre and made her his priestess and consort, calling her the Sophia, or fallen thought of God. It is probable that Simon and Jesus were friends and perhaps even associates. Simon helped Jesus carry his cross at, uh, to Golgotha. After Jesus' death, Simon tried to join the Christian disciples, but was refused. Peter later murdered Simon by chopping down a pole that he was perched upon uh, while the mystic performed a public ascension to heaven, climbing into the sun, which is a variation of the famous Hindu rope trick. Both Jesus 
and Simon were magicians, and some of Jesus' miracles were in the realm of what we would call magic, which in those days included a mix of trickery and psychological suggestion. The trickery was evident in the water into wine at the wedding of Cana, which was Jesus' wedding. In those days, wine was always diluted with water, and it was easy to submerge a skin full of strong wine into a barrel or a large amphora filled with water. The magician then plunged his wand with a spiked tip into the jar and muttered uh, his incantations while stirring vigorously and presto, water into wine. The third century Valentinian priest Marcus did a version of this trick in France to establish the Grail legend. More on that later. Psychological magic was evident in the loaves and fishes miracle. If you were a if, if you were uh, prosperous in those days, and took your family on a long hike to hear a prophet speak, you brought a whole loaf of bread and a whole filleted fish wrapped in wet leaves as your picnic lunch. Lunch for ten people, if properly divided. The miracle was in getting the rich people in the crowd to share with the poor folks. And when you think about it, that really was a miracle, and a Christian miracle at that. As for raising Lazarus, he may well have been a victim of ergot poisoning or some other cause of zombification. Catatonic states often resulted in premature burials. Hmm. In early times. And as for the healings, psychosomatic illnesses were more prevalent in ancient times. Blindness could be inflicted with a curse and lifted with a blessing. Numerous diseases were attributed to demonic possession, and the expulsion of demons cured the malady. Jesus was an exorcist on several occasions, and his removal of Mary Magdalene's seven demons was probably a reference to purifying her chakras. Perhaps replacing her pagan god and goddess forms with the with the holy angels attributed attributed to the planets, and these angels are symbolized in Joseph and Asenath by the retention of her seven virgin handmaidens after she renounced her pagan Egyptian pantheon. And it has often been noted that Jesus' teachings are similar to those of Rabbi Hillel. This was not the case in regard to divorce. Hillel favored making divorce easier for the husband, whereas Jesus saw this as disempowering the wife. As mentioned above, Jesus and the Valentinian Gnostic Christians perpetuated the concept of reuniting the two separated halves of the soul. What God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. Jesus' cleansing of the temple probably had more to do with protesting the sacrificing of the animals themselves than the money paid for them. The Eloists the Essenes, and many of the early Christians were vegetarians, including Jesus' brother James and his followers. Jesus, and we must assume Mary also, were social rebels and revolutionaries. In Jesus' time, Galilee was mostly biblical lowest and Greco-Phoenician pagan, Canaanite. However, since the Hasmonean era, Galilee's ruling class and its land and business owners were all Yahweh's Jews. And the Eloists and the pagans of the of, uh, and the pagans of the region were the poor whom Jesus advocated for. Although Jesus was ethnically Jewish royalty, ethnically Jewish royalty, he was raised in Galilee, and his religious philosophical perspective was Canaanite and the lowest. 
El was obviously his father in heaven. Mary was Phoenician royalty and a priestess of the goddess. Together they would be like an Egyptian pharaoh and his queen, uniting all Israel under the original biblical god and goddess of Genesis. The, uh, the Elohim. Jesus probably believed he could persuade the Romans that, he, that, that his and Mary's rule would benefit the empire, bringing stability and peace to a region that had been plagued by the anti-pagan and anti-Roman fanaticism of the Elohists. However, Jesus' cousin, Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, was not about to step aside for the king of the Jews. And because Antipas did not have the authority to have Jesus executed, he bribed Pilate, that's Luke, that's Luke chapter 23, verse 12, to have him crucified. We are not going to enter into a speculation about Jesus arranging to have Judas betray him. Judas actually betrayed Jesus' child, not not uh, not, not, uh, not Jesus. Um, uh, except to state that it seems more reasonable that the real betrayal was from his own family, the Herodians, and that's, of course, from Herod Antipas. Although they could not have altered Herod the Great's will, now this is this is important. They, although uh, they, they 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 could not have altered Herod the Great's will that was filed in Rome, they could have tampered with or removed Jesus' birth certificate from the Jerusalem temple records. And we can assume they may have tried. However, uh, Joseph of Arimathea happened to be a member of the Sanhedrin, and he knew it was there. And even if they took it out, he still knew it was there. Now, regarding uh, Jesus' death, he again mentioned that Mary Mary Magdalene anointed his body and was the first person to see his astral form, his ghost, after his physical demise. This fulfills the role uh, as the resurrecting goddess and priestess of the old pagan dying god. Uh, are you still with me, Mike? Yes, I am. No, that's good. We, we, we're just about to get to the... Just about to get to the grill here. Um, All right, we're getting we're getting there. Well, we got plenty of time. Okay. Um, now she who be, now she Mary Magdalene she who bears the grail down to the underworld to revive the year king. Now she completes the promise of the Nessian document and the requisites of the medieval grail legend. Now, following the death of Jesus, we are told that Mary Magdalene became a leader and uh, became a leader of the surviving Christian Church. She was gradually supplanted by the Catholics by Mary the mother, and and uh, finally Mary the mother, and Mary the wife merged in the same myth-making process that had made Isis the mother, sister, wife of Osiris, and even their son Horus. And the great goddess becomes all things womanly. A mother, a sister, and a whore. And, and the mythical son of God is all things manly, father, husband, hero, and lover. In point of fact, we do not know if there ever really was a historical Jesus. Now, we, don't, we, 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 can't, we, can, we can't prove it. Uh, this is, what I'm saying now is, is, is hypothetical. For those people who, who think that, well, oh, yeah, oh, this, this sounds good, but, uh, but they may not have been well. But, but okay, let's, let's deal with that. The reason why I want to deal with that is, is that Gnostic, 
that Gnostic Christianity uh, actually kind of seems to be uh, sort of non non physical. Uh, we're talking the Gnostics talk about a non physical Christ, like he was never really physically here, uh, and so so that that. So that that just to, to to serve that that argument, or say uh, if there if there ever really was a historical Jesus, early Christianity, especially Gnostic Christianity, seems to be more mythical than historical. The events in Jesus's life and his death are more symbolic than historical. He is the martyred redeemer, the sacrificed God, the Savior we did not deserve but will try to be worthy of, and most importantly, the Christ that lives within us all. In this sense, Mary, be she mother, sister, or wife, is equally important as an indwelling archetype of the female side of the human race and the goddess within. The female aspect of God was one of the healthy qualities of paganism that never should have been lost to the bellicose rumblings of Jehovah. Reinstating Mary as the wife of Jesus rather than his mother restores the sacred balance, and even if it is mythical rather than historical, it is as it should be. Which leads us to a new mythical direction in a new mythical direction following Jesus' death. But with the advent of Alatinian Christianity in the second century AD, we enter the Holy Grail cycle of Christian myth. As mentioned above, the Hieros Gamos, sacred marriage was the true sacrament in Valentinian Christianity more important than the Eucharist. It is perfectly symbolized in Joseph and Asenath and also in the Crowd of Repoa as the Oimelus honey seminal sacrament. And also see our seasonal rites of Bolinistarte. Now the last the last section here. Crucifixion, resurrection, and the Holy Grail. Jesus' attempt to take over the temple in the name of El got him arrested and brought to trial before the Sanhedrin, which he had anticipated. He had a family member on the court, his half-brother Joseph of Arimathea, who would assure who would, who would assure the other court members that Jesus was the grandson of King Herod and therefore the rightful heir to the throne, the priesthood, and as royalty... Honor an honorary Roman citizen. In other words, the whole nine yards. These qualifications exempted him from Jewish justice. He could not be stoned for blasphemy like his brother James was years later. But the Romans could execute him for sedition. Jesus knew this, but he also believed that the Romans might prefer to recognize his kingship and religious reforms in preference to the divisive Tetrarchy of his Rhodian cousins. However, Jesus miscalculated. Pontius Pilate may have briefly entertained the idea of King Jesus. He obviously entertained it enough to put it on the sign above the cross. Yeah, that brings up a good point that's in the Gospels, which is Herod and Pilate did not like each other until that point, but it says after. After uh, Jesus was an issue, all of a sudden, Pilate loved Herod, and obviously, Pilate had to be bribed. Oh, they they, they became good friends, yeah. That's that's obvious, obviously, to bribe. The approval from Rome, whereas Herod Antipas' gold was a more immediate reward, you know, 
Pilate, Pilate might have thought, because uh, Jesus kept saying, well, my kingdom is not of this world. He's trying to tell Pilate, look, I, I, can, I can heal all this, this spiritual fighting, you know. You know, once, once, we get, once we have the original God back in the temple, and and this the, all this this business of my God is better than your God. That's all that's all going to stop, you know. I mean, uh, and and uh, so, but and Pilate might have entertained that idea, but the problem with it was he'd have to he'd have to uh, he'd have to go to Rome himself almost. I mean, they wouldn't take it on a letter. They they wouldn't. I don't think they'd let him do it on a letter. He'd have to go to Rome himself, and before he'd get any really real reward out of this, uh, uh, it'd be you know he could be. He could be somewhere else by that time. So we're here. Here he's got a big, uh, a big, uh, big bribe, you know, that he can get for killing him. So that that that's more immediate reward. And thus the king of the Jews was crucified rather than anointed. Now, given the circumstance, it does not seem logical that Jesus willingly sacrificed himself to serve God or redeem mankind. He took the risk, and paid the price, and the. Uh, redemption he offered died with him, and Jehovah lived on to subvert the original L-inspired teachings of Jesus in the New Testament. And I was, it was L, it was L talking, talking you know, the Sermon on the Mount. That wasn't, that wasn't Jehovah. Jesus did not incite Judas to betray him before Calvary. Judas betrayed Christ's legacy after his death. Mary Magdalene, Jesus' wife, was the first to dress his wounds and prepare him for Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Joseph was Jesus' half-brother, as he saw for the family tomb. Mary was the first to see Jesus resurrected in his actual form. She also shared his ascension ritual with the other disciples, see the Seer Gospel. She and her brothers Philip and Lazarus, along with Joseph of Arimathea, left Judea and sailed for southern France. They had to flee Palestine because Mary was pregnant, and Judas had sold this information to Herod Antipas for 30 pieces of silver. Her flight with the child is told in Revelation 12, 1 through 6. Herod's assassins would keep on cracking the Grail family for years, eventually passing their contract on to the Roman church. Jesus' son by Mary Magdalene, the true Grail king, was called Hebron. We must recall that the Jewish diaspora had been going on ever since the Roman conquest of Palestine, and there were large dispersed Jewish communities in Alexandria and in Greece and in southern Gaul, France. Now, these communities were what we now call Sephardic, whereas later northern European Jewish communities were called Ashkenazic. Now, the important point here is, is that the Grail family and its cult started in France, not Britain. So the French knight in Monty Python was right when he told King Arthur, Yes, we have a Holy Grail, and our Holy Grail is better than your Holy Grail, you stupid English person, you. However, Joseph of Arimathea's lineage, uh, uh, through his daughter, Anna Inigius, uh who married Belly, King of Britain, from which King Arthur descended on his father's side. Now, Jesus, through Hebron, is the single most significant ancestor of the Merovingian dynasty in France. And the Joseph of Arimathea bloodline was said to be the true grail lineage and by one John of Glastonbury, and this has fueled and rekindled the argument uh, for centuries. Now, most scholars now agree that southern France, Provence, and Languedoc 
was the original Camelot, and the tales of King Arthur and his knights were really French troubadour romances. And, of course, according to Valentinian traditions, the sacred marriage uh, was the true passion of Christianity. What could be more romantic than that? What is perhaps more interesting from our viewpoint is that this same area, the Rhone River estuary and valley, saw the rise of Valentinian Christianity under Marcus the Magician. Valentinian and Marcosian Gnostic beliefs and ritual were inspired by the Gospels of Mary and her brother Philip, who had taken refuge in southern France. Now, Mary died in 72 AD. Valentinius was a candidate for the Pope in in 143 A.D. in Rome, but was opposed by Arrhenius, the Archbishop of Lyon, who, in, in uh, 178 A.D., accused both Marcus and Valentinian of uh, heretical practices. Let's see. Those good old heretical practices. Okay. Of heretical practices. Valentinius died in 180 A.D., but Marcus and the others of the Holy Grail tradition continued his work, including women in their sacred rituals. Marcus and his priestess had a Eucharist service in which they turned water into wine. But in 326 A.D., Emperor Constantine branded all Valentinians heretics. And in 1209, the Catholic Albigensian Crusade exterminated the last of the Holy Grail, Gnostic Holy Grail cults in southern France. And there goes the Priory, the priory of Zion, gone. Uh, however, like a phoenix rising from its ashes, the tradition rose again with the establishment of the Crater of right in Lyon, France, in the 1780s. And as we have noted above, Crater of has an ancient connection to the lost gospel of Joseph and Asenath, and to the chemical wedding of Christian Rosencruz. Valentinian Gnostic Christianity developed its 30 Aeon theory from Mary's gospel, which eventually became the 30 Aether Anokian scrying system of John D. The Greek Kabbalistic Soma Sophia celestial map of Marcus the Valentinian became the Anokian watchtowers, and the gospel of Philip inspired our theories of the magical Hieros Gamos, especially in the mirrored bridal chamber. We believe that Valentinian Gnostic Christianity lies at the core of Hermetic Rosicrucianism. Can I put the 3 mark on it? Before we get to discussing this, let me read the bibliography so everybody knows where this comes from. The Bible, King James Version, an Essayine document of Hippolytus. From Ritual to Romance by Jesse Weston. The Lost Gospel, Jacobovici and Wilson. Herodian Messiah by Joseph Raymond. King Jesus, Robert Graves. Jesus the Venetian, Kareem Elkusa. Mysteries of John the Baptist and Gnostic Mysteries of Sex by Tobias Churton. Jesus the Magician, Morton Smith. Simon Magus, G.R.S. Mead. And the History of the Holy Grail, Henry Lovitch. And okay, so now, uh, uh, let's see. How much time do we have left in this, in this marathon here? No, we got to. Uh, oh, we got a lot of time. Uh, so, Mike, what do you uh, what do you think? Uh, um, uh, what would you like to add to this that, that, that I may have left out? Well, I, I think you've encompassed um, everything pretty well, all the nuts and bolts. Um, 
Uh, very little to add, except, you know, I'm hearing this and I'm thinking, boy, this would actually make a really good movie of, of the life of uh, Mary Magdalene after Jesus and uh, the whole flight to France and, and um, perpetuating the Grail lineage. Um, kind of an interesting interplay between uh, Joseph of Arimathea's lineage and, and uh, Mary Magdalene's lineage. Um, those were, of course, those were reunited in King Arthur. His um, his mother came through the uh, Mary Magdalene line, and his father came through the, um, you know, Joseph of Arimathea's line. But then, of course, the Merovingians are, are really important, and they're the ones who came straight from um, uh, Jesus's uh, Merovingian line um, through that universal ancestor, Boaz and Fortis, from which both the Merovingians and the Arthurians claim descent. And we didn't mention the, the Merovingian bees. The Merovingian bees, you know, that Napoleon Napoleon dug up, I think he dug up on the Merovingian kings and, and took the golden bees off of his off of his grave clothes and put them on his his uh coronation robe when he got uh, when he became emperor of France. Uh oh, and, I didn't know uh, that. Mer- oh yeah, yeah, the Merovingian bees uh and and uh uh, Jacobo Vici, uh well, of course, the honey, you know, the honey the sacrament in Joseph and Asenath and also in the Crater of Poa, uh, uh, the honey, and also in our tradition, the uh, uh, the the bees um, uh, play play a large role in the honey, play a large role in the symbolism uh, of, uh, you know, of uh, Mary Magdalene and and uh well and, and also uh there's a there's a statue uh a pagan a statue of a pagan goddess up in in uh in anatolia that that's just covered with bees uh and 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 uh, uh it, it, so the the bee symbolism which carries on through the masonry too uh we should mention that and and of course i could uh, one of uh, one of the one of one of, one of my family crests, crests from, you know, originally from southern France has three golden bees on it, so I kind of like that. But but uh, uh, he, uh, the thing is though, you know, about I, I hate to, I, I know I have a lot of uh, I have a lot of around British friends and people that that would much rather have Joseph of Arimathea and all of them going over to Glastonbury uh, rather than settling in Languedoc, but. Uh, well, well, I well I, I, to, to make them happy, Joseph of Arimathea was supposed to die in Glastonbury, and that's where his family settled. But Mary Magdalene's family settled in France. Well, that's why Mary yeah. Magdalene's Merovingian lineage, uh, it stays in France. France. But what happens with uh, King Arthur is um, his, his mother um, descended from the Merovingian line that stayed in France, that, that descended from Mary Magdalene and Jesus. And uh, his father descended from Joseph of Arimathea's line, and it was his daughter who married the king of Britain, Belot. Yeah. So it's a nice yeah. story that actually does include both families. Oh yeah, well, and both no lands. There's no doubt that it goes that 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 it, that it extends over there. It's just that it that that that. Uh, uh, we do have to realize, though, that 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 most of those Arthurian romances do come from southern France. They they really do. I mean, they uh, they um, um, and I think even in Mallory, 
you know, the idea of um, of Lancelot coming from France, they 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 uh, they they even almost concede in a way. They almost concede that that, that connection there, uh, and and we have to also remember uh, the people that are uh, that are very much into the uh, into the uh, uh, the Camelot uh, mythos. I have to remember that 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 was established. That that whole thing was established by the by the Norman by the Norman French, who, who were actually uh, late comers. They, they were late comers to that to the whole legend, uh, you know, to the, to the whole idea. They 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 were almost like, in a way, they were almost like uh, uh, the carpetbaggers and the scallywags that came down down and settled in the in the south after the war between the states, you know, from they came down from the north, and then and the next generation of them, <laughs> the next generation of them were were going around waving Confederate flags and you know and all of that and claiming to be. <laughs> and they weren't, you know. They, yeah. they were, they were, they were transplanted Yankees, and this is the same thing with the Normans. They, they were, they were a bunch of, they were a bunch of Vikings that came down and decided that they were going to become uh, French troubadours, you know. Uh, and uh, and so that, and they, they, they defined our theory in chivalry, you know. Uh, and and so so we get we we have when we get into this argument, like you know, this is why I mentioned. Uh, why I mentioned uh, the Monty Python and the and when you know Arthur goes clip clopping up to the French castle in, in Monty Python and the Holy Grail yeah. and and he looks up there and there's this French knight up there in the top of the tower and, and he says uh, I say do you have a Holy Grail? And the Frenchman looks down at him and he says Yes we have a Holy Grail yeah. and our Holy Grail is better than your Holy Grail, you stupid English person you I Trump in your general direction, <laughs> and but and they, they might what what they were doing is they were making fun of uh, the uh, the Python group, where they're making fun of of all this squabbling between between the, the French romanticists and the and the and the British romanticists about uh, you know about where the uh, where the uh, Holy Grail really 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 came from, uh, so and and uh, that that's why I want to point out that. That Mary Magdalene and and Joseph Arimathea and and uh, Philip and the whole the whole gang the whole the whole early Christian gang they they would not have gone to some place where there wasn't a, uh, a a Jewish community they they went to there was there was a there was in Marseille there was a big Jewish community just you know just like there was in 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 Alexandria and in Greece and various places so they they went where where they had connections and and uh, and so that, that and that's where it took root um that's uh, i you know uh, we did a um we did a show some time back i read uh, Janine Renee's uh, um uh, uh her article on on Parseval. Uh, so the earliest uh, is the earliest of the, those uh, those southern French Grail Grail legends, uh, uh, and that that we have that back in the archives. Uh, but I but I do think though that that that, uh, that a lot of that uh, that the, the French tradition uh, got replicated over it, it it came over and it got replicated over in England, uh, and probably before the Normans probably before the Normans got into it. Um, 
Now, what do you think? Uh, you know, I, I, I when I when we started this discussion off, this whole thing, I, I said that 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 the 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 whole conflict here between L and 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 uh, and uh, and uh, Yahweh, Jehovah, that's the real the real thing behind this story. That and 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 the. The idea of 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 you reuniting the soul by right, the sacred marriage, of, of bringing bringing the goddess, bringing the god and the goddess on equal equal perfectly equal footing, because they're both part they're both halves of the same soul. They're both halves of the same uh, that this that that's the real meat of what we're talking about here. Uh, the rest of it, all of this, whether you know, it doesn't really matter that much whether whether Jesus was was the grandson of Herod or not. We think he was. There's plenty of evidence pointing to that. And uh, but at the same time, that's not necessarily doesn't have to be the case. He could be, as as Karim uh, Alcusa uh, suggests, he could be entirely entirely Phoenician. That's that's very possible. Uh, I think that uh, I think that that that, uh, our, that this the thesis is more you know is more in line with with what we know you know uh, uh, it, it it fits better with some of the scriptural. Uh, well, he would have but, been raised Phoenician anyways. If he was in Galilee, he was under yeah, a heavy he, Phoenician influence. Hey, yeah, and, of course, and his, yeah, yeah. His father, even though his father was supposed to be Antipater's cousin, his father was pretty well established in Phoenicia or, or in Galilee already. So he he would have identified with that, and Jesus would have grown up around it. And he also would have grown up seeing um, the the distance between the Judean elites and uh, the native Galileans who had been there for centuries. So um, he he has a good. Uh, Kasim has a really good point for the the really heavy Phoenician environment that Jesus grew up in, and he probably looked at the the Judean elites who had transplanted themselves in and thought, "What are you guys doing to all these kids that I'm growing up with, that I'm friends with, and you're looking down yeah. on all these people?" And, and you think that's not right. So, so that would have been Jesus's identity, and it would have been one that he got from his his. Well, technically, you know, it, it's both his. Uh, his, his his Joseph would have been his stepfather, but he also would have been his uncle um, yeah. biologically. So that's 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 where he's getting his uh, his identity as someone who's who's lived in Galilee longer than he has. So that's his identity that he's growing up with. And um, yeah. Mary also had roots in that area as well. If she was uh, a Samaritan or, or part Samaritan, which I think she definitely was, then her her identity also would have been strongly Phoenician. So um, you're saying you're so, saying Mary, so the whole, wait, 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 which Mary? Which, which Mary? Mary the mother, Mary, or Mary uh, mother the Mary, wife? Mother Mary, uh, her her father was supposed to be a Samaritan high priest, Joachim. Yeah, yeah. So so yeah. that would have made her identity very strongly connected with uh, or a Galilean high priest. So her her, her ancestry, he would have had Phoenician ancestry on his mother's side, who I, he identified not having Antipater around. He would have identified very strongly with his Phoenician ancestry that he had from his mother. Yeah, or well, we know he's American ancestry. We also know he spent a lot of time in Phoenicia, and, he had, uh, you know, he, uh, he. Uh, so I think I think our our, our 
the way we put it together and all the references we have here, I think we're, I think we're very, very close to the historical uh, reality of this. And even I though think we are too. I did, yeah, I think we, I think we're, we're very close to the historical reality, and I'm almost, uh, and and I think as time goes on, there'll be more and more confirmation of this. Uh, and uh, anyway, uh, this will be a, a part of our. Uh, this will be in our new in our new yoga book, the second volume of, of uh, Hermetic Yoga. Uh, but also, uh, we might, you know, as we discussed, we might we might make a separate book out of this, uh, fill it in because for one thing, this is what we just delivered tonight was very dense. I mean, that that that's the you know yeah, it was. We, we, yeah, this is very, very dense. This is almost like, uh, almost like instant coffee. I mean, it's very concentrated. And, yeah. And uh, we could, yeah, we could fill like in ten shows could, worth. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, and well, there is. Yeah, and but I think, yeah, I think, I think we might be able to do a whole book on this, and and uh, and certainly have enough interesting material. Uh, however, uh, anyway, uh, next week. Next week we're we're going to have our our, our dear sister uh, Urania, uh, Ann Finnan, is going to be be on uh, talking about her new novel, The Dear Departed, and what Ann tells me that this this is a Dion Fortunish uh, type novel, uh, and sort of a you know Doctor Tavener kind of kind of thing that she has, and she just has it out now, and and so. We'll have uh, we'll have Sister Urania and and uh, and on uh, uh, next week and uh, and uh, we'll all look forward to that. And so, until then, good magic. This is the smell of a warm three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy. Blech. And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso Lemon Scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty! (sighs) Smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get Hefty Ultra Strong with new Fabuloso Lemon Scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.